Welcome to this week's edition of Matt's Sporthouse. I'm your host, Matthew Anderson. Let's get right into it. You know, a Labor Day weekend, which was this past weekend, means college football. So let's start off with the, uh, the upstate. Clemson had a matchup last Thursday night against Georgia Tech, the home opener in Death Valley. And as they predicted, they did take the win, 52-14. to Now, some interesting things to note. Trevor Lawrence did struggle with two interceptions, a couple of uh, incompletions that last season he were to hit easy. And there were actually like one or two more throws that could have been intercepted that the uh, Georgia Tech defensive backs or uh, linebackers just didn't make the play. But it's kind of interesting to see what the media does. They've been building Trevor Lawrence up as this Heisman candidate, and he's the best. I think Urban Meyer said he's the best quarterback prospect he's ever seen. And then tear, and then Trevor goes out and has a bad game. They tear you down and say, has he lost his Heisman chances and all that? So you're really going to kind of stay afloat because the, the media circuit is really, and I think it's also because there's so much sports media nowadays that like they're looking for stuff to talk about because these stations are on 24-7. So anytime they get the chance to talk about you when you're doing good, that's great but when you're doing bad it's really bad I think though there's some little stuff that I saw that he could get corrected so him and the Clemson quarterbacks coach coach three coach three will figure it out they'll get it together by the next game um also one thing to think about for Trevor that's like a really dope thing is that he has dynamic receivers like Justin Ross, T. Higgins, Amari Rogers when he gets back from his torn ACL. So really, they can make him look good. Because, for example, that deep ball to T. Higgins, uh, Skip Bayless was like, that was an NFL-style throw. The ball was actually very much behind T. But T is so, so, so uh, is such athletically gifted that he can go back and get up. So really, Trevor just has to kind of get the ball in the area of those receivers. So, but I mean, I don't really expect it. Maybe A&M might give Clemson some problems this weekend. But I don't really expect any other team to give them too many issues until probably the college football playoff barn that they make it. Uh, Dabo is really good. I don't know if you all noticed, but I think it was the halftime speech, his halftime talk with uh, Maria Taylor. She goes, Dabo, I know this is not a great way. This is not the way you're looking for it to end in the half. The half. And he flips the script completely into how showing all talking about all the good things that Clemson had done and that he's excited to go into the half with the lead. And he is a marketing expert because he turned a, like a positive one could say like a negative thing of public relations of Clemson football, even though it's just a half into like an extremely positive thing. It's like, look at all what all we've done. So that time that Dabble spent, because I don't know if y'all noticed, but when he got fired from, uh, well, they kind of let that go with the whole coaching staff at Alabama. When he was there, he became a real estate agent. And you can tell he uses those things and applying his coaching platform. And so hats off to Dabble for doing that. I thought that was, it was a small thing, but it was very good to be able to do that because it was basically like he didn't go into the half. Although he probably went in there and cussed out his whole team, you would not have known that simply from listening to how he talked to Maria Taylor and which got out to the masses being us. Now, one thing I will say is, although you know Trevor, not Trevor Lawrence, um, Christian Wilkins, Dexter Lawrence, Cleveland Farrell, Austin Bryant, although all those guys left, one bright spot on that defensive line besides Xavier Thomas is definitely Tyler Davis, number 13. He's from Florida. He's a true freshman. He started. He's a defensive tackle. He has really quick hands. He's going to be a monster and something that and someone that defensive coordinators in the ACC will not look forward to going against. He's 6'2", 295, which is not that big as far as defensive linemen. From a defensive line standpoint, 6'2", 295, a lot of times those guys are like 6'5", and 6'6", especially in that Florida, Georgia, Alabama Clemson range-ish, but that dude is going to be a monster. Like, if you saw how he was getting off the center at the defensive, uh, the center and the guards, 
it was like he was doing it fluently, and he's only a true freshman. That was his first start in playing college football. Travis Etienne, Travis Etienne is still a beast and a force to be reckoned with. He had 12 carries for 205 yards. And if you think about that, he already has a fifth of a thousand yards. I wouldn't be surprised he has a two thousand yard season because it's not like Clemson gonna be playing with a lot of really good defenses. Like they'll play Wake Forest and Georgia Tech. As a matter of fact, had a pretty solid defense, but it's really the defensive backs. But I don't think he'll face too much too much more competition to where they'll really be able to challenge him in the Clemson offensive line. Now I will tell you this. Travis Eden is a junior, so next season he probably will be. I mean, this season after this season he probably will be living, leaving. But they have this guy named Lynn J. Dixon who's number twenty-three. Clemson fans remember Andre Ellington as being number twenty-three, but this dude is just as good as Travis, and I think he would probably start at most other schools. It just so happens that he has Travis Eden, which is a potential Heisman candidate in front of him. Lynn J. Dixon for the years to come will be a beast for the Tigers. They have really nothing to worry about. It's almost like as soon as Travis comes, it's like they can't wait to this next guy. It'll be like of a Wayne Gallman to a Travis Etienne more so than uh wait did Wayne come in right after Travis yeah yeah it'll be more so like a a Wayne Goldman to a Travis Etienne transition it won't be like a big drop off because the dude is electric he's quick he's fast Clemson has a really good thing about finding these running backs from these small towns and they're ready to go right away because you know when the coaches recruit them they might think like they don't really know how good the guy is till he gets on campus because he might just be good in his small area or wherever he's from like these small counties because even uh Travis Etienne's from a little county in uh Louisiana but they hit the nail on the head with Lin J and there will be no It'll be a fluent transition between Travis and Lynn J once Travis goes on to the draft. This Saturday, as I said before, the Tigers will be back in Death Valley to play to take on the Texas A&M Aggies. Some call them the 12th man. Jimbo Fisher will be making his return to Death Valley. And instead of being, he'll still be in that garnet type maroon color because that's what Florida State was, but now it'll be with Texas A&M, and they'll bring their SEC talents over, and that, that's going to be a really good game. It's a 3.30 game, and I'm pretty sure that game's on ESPN, either ESPN or ABC, so make sure to tune into that. Now for the Gamecocks. South Carolina lost to North Carolina 24-20. to The fresh, uh, North Carolina was starting a true freshman quarterback named Sam Howell, and he didn't really play particularly well in the first half. They kind of depend on their run game. But in that second half, he really took over. He went from being a, a quarterback to like a ball player. Like, I'm just an extreme ball player. He took them as a true freshman, took them in the second half on two 90-yard-plus drives with a throwing foot. His throwing form was cramping, so he was having to have all type of nutrients like bananas and vitamins or whatever they took. We were giving them on the sideline to make sure that he was able to play. And he had this one pass that he rocketed past J.C. Horn, which is one of the USC defensive backs. I still don't know how he got it in there. I don't know if J.C. just didn't close his hands to make the catch or did that guy just rocket that pass in there. But it got past, and that was on one of those drives that helped them win the game. I will say, though, one of the bright stars for the Carolina uh, Gamecocks defense was Ernest Jones, number 53. He was all over the place. And I think that was also, he plays opposite of TJ Brunson. I think that's also because they were doubling down on TJ because TJ's was uh, TJ's ranked one of the highest linebackers in the SEC. But Ernest Jones really had a great showing. So that is definitely a bright spot to take for this game. 
most fans are looking at Jake Bentley as he's the worst thing known to man and stuff. And he did have some throws that towards the end that you would have liked to see him make. And because those were the crucial throws that he missed, everybody's like, what in the world? But I tell you this, he is really good at getting away from pressure. But there were a lot of times that he should not have been able to get the ball off at all because the defensive line had pressure coming right up the middle. And he was able to avoid the uh, potential the potential defense player that was about to sack him. So while Carolina fans are justified to be a little bit upset with him, he was not the reason that they lost that game. Like there were a lot of times, there were a lot of times that he should that he should have been sacked, that he was able to get out of it and maybe make an easy throw. They they didn't really open up the playbook too. And a lot of times, even whenever they tried to throw it deep, like let's say to Brian Edwards or something, the defense had a really good coverage. So I don't know if they were the, the offensive coordinator wasn't really full in the defense, but it seems like even on those deep passes, besides the one wherever Shai Smith ran right down the middle and Jake just missed him, they had pretty good coverage on the USC receivers. I kind of expected Brian Edwards to get more targets throughout this game. I know he dropped one early. At like the, I think it was like the five or six yard line, but it seems like he was kind of a non-factor throughout the game. I know that was a big relief for North Carolina, unless they were just double teaming him. I wasn't able to see it from like the coach's film, so if once I see that, I'll be able to like fully determine what was going on. But kind of when it came down to it, the first of all, the North Carolina ran the ball very well, and toward in that second half, their receivers just made plays over the USC defensive backs. Like, big-time plays, and that, that was just the means of it. It was like the balls in the air. I think they usually they call those 50-50 balls. Their guys just made plays on them, and that's ultimately what caused them to win that game. That's a huge confidence booster for Howell, though, to come in and play an SEC defense as a freshman and go out and beat them. That, that was a big thing for him. And I'm pretty sure there were a lot of Gamecock fans. That, from what I saw, it seems like there were more Gamecock fans than North Carolina fans. So it was, even, it was a neutral site, but it seemed like more of a Gamecock-type environment. Now, the reason that, for, for one thing, former players are not happy about this, they feel as if that this is just not it for Carolina, that they're sick of the mediocrity of the program, and their hashtag fire must champs uh, tr- is trending all over Twitter, things of that nature, especially on Saturday. But it seems like fans have kind of cooled out from them, but they are ready to see Hyatt Ryan Helensky hopefully come in at some point. And he probably will play a little bit this week in Charleston Southern. I don't think he'll start, but he definitely will probably play because it's like it should be a blowout. We never really know, but it should be a blowout. So you would think after like maybe the after they go up, maybe 28, 35 points to go ahead and get them in just to go ahead and get some live reps in like a game, not a game type situation in actual game. But one of the reasons that I would expect USC fans to be so upset is USC is on the toughest schedules in the country. Later this year, they play Georgia. They play Alabama, not this Saturday, but next Saturday. They play Clemson, A&M. Appalachian State is known to be like a giant slinger, kind of like an old David and Goliath type of situation. So that's no easy game. And so it's like this was supposed to be an easy one to go ahead and get, get started because North Carolina only won two games last season. And they're in the ACC, and you know, everybody in the ACC looks down on the ACC. So it's like the fact that, well, pretty much the whole country looks down on the ACC besides Clemson. Besides Clemson being the team that they don't look down on. So this is the fact that it's like, wow, we can't even win this game. So what are we going to do against the rest of the big dogs? And also, Will Muschamp said this is probably his best roster that he's had. Because these are all his players. You know, when he first got hired, he just had to take whatever was given to him. But now these are all his players. And so the fact that his players lost to North Carolina, that really, I think that really put a dent in the fan base. Some people are saying that they think that the fan base, uh, that Muschamp has lost the fan base, and that's not where you want to be at, because now, because in a tough season, where you've lost the fan base, everything is multiplied by like 10,000, like if you lose, we really lost, you get it, but... 
fun fact, Muschamp played the, the head coach of North Carolina was Mac Brown. He was a coach of Texas for a long period of time. Then he went to being an ESPN commentator. Now he's a coach at North Carolina. But anyway, Will Muschamp actually played, was coached under him at Texas. He was then named, Will Muschamp was then named the head coach in waiting or something like that. Or that just never worked itself out. So he ended up going to Auburn. And now, obviously, at Carolina for now. But not just for USC, but for a lot of teams in the SEC, it was a rough day. Missouri lost to Wyoming. But fun fact, Kelly Bryant, who is now the starting quarterback at Missouri, threw 423 yards and one interception. So that loss was not on him. I mean, he might have been a part of it, but that was not clearly not just him. Ole Miss lost to Memphis. One of the Ole Miss receivers were talking junk the week before, calling Memphis like little brothers and Memphis mess around and go and beat Ole Miss. So that was very very unfortunate. And also Tennessee lost to Georgia State. Georgia State's head coach was the interim head coach for USC. Uh, Sean Elliott is his name. Whenever uh, Steve Spurrier stepped down. But the big question with Tennessee is, what happened to the town at Tennessee? You know, there were no players from the volunteers to uh, in the combine. You know, think about it. Tennessee has a rich history. Eric Berry, Peyton Manning, guys of those. And so they went from that to having no guys taken in the combine. Like, that's insane. Like, where is the talent? Because they, they're still getting three and four stars and five stars. So is it, is it a developmental issue? Is it a coaching issue? We're going to figure that out later on in the year. But one, sprite, one bright spot in SEC was that Auburn did, uh, they played Oregon in the Cowboy Stadium and in the opener. I think they I think they called the Cotton Bowl opener. I'm not 100% sure about that. But anyway, Auburn had a true freshman quarterback starting, and he beat Justin Herbert, who's the quarterback at Oregon, who was a Heisman candidate, 27-21, obviously him and company. Bo Nix is his name, the Auburn true freshman quarterback. He went 13 for 31 for 177 yards and two interceptions. And that is not great. But you have to understand that last year he was in high school. This year he is leading Auburn against a team with a high, like I said before, a Heisman Trophy candidate, a potential candidate. So not the best performance, 13 for 31. That means you completed like three less than half, 50% of your throws. But when they needed him most, on the game-winning drive, he delivered. That's a lot of a true freshman. So if you're thinking, okay, if he right off the bando can do this, give it two to three years of development under um, Gus Malzon, he could be something special. Now, I do say that, but at the same time, we haven't really seen a quarterback develop under Gus Malzon since Cam Newton. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens out there. There's a lot of, there's so many quarterback gurus though nowadays that like you don't even, you have a quarterback's coach and offense coordinator, but I feel like a lot of these guys spend a lot of their time and money or their parents' money or I don't even know if the university could pay for it. I'm going to have to do some research on that, but they can go with these quarterbacks coach and get the fundamentals reinstalled in the off season or just get those guys to come down to like the football facilities in like Auburn or wherever and they can work on their game in there in the off season. Now, for a quarterback that dominated the SEC and has moved on to the Big 12, Jalen Hurts led the Oklahoma Sooners past Houston, the final score of 49-31. This Oklahoma team will be different. Like, I, I'm, I've been trying to figure out a way to describe it, but it's kind of like how Kelly Bryant was in that 2017 year whenever he led Clemson to the Sugar Bowl, if I'm not mistaken, versus Alabama. I think that's how they're going to use Jalen. Because Jalen is, like, I, I knew this when he, I knew this, yeah, whenever he was at Alabama, but he's a runner. 
Like he can, but he can throw the ball fairly well too. But he is definitely a runner. But one thing you can notice about Jalen Hurts when you watch the games, he looks like a quarterback. He's six two. He has complete control. He's this calm confidence about himself that you can definitely see after the game. He gets back to the press conference. He doesn't just do it in like some team apparel. He gets dressed up back in a suit. He decides to host pro when he first got to Alabama. I mean, when he first got to Oklahoma. He decided to. Uh, to call a press conference just to introduce himself to the media like he's different and as a matter of fact I feel like whenever the, the NFL symposiums they're like whenever you're looking for a college quarterback prospect that uh that you want to play quarterback for your organization that's what they want you to look like like he dots all the I's crosses all the T's so he really does like that was the one thing I took from him. his performance was great and all I think he only had three incompletions but the way he handles himself is like that is what an NFL franchise quarterback is supposed to look like. Now, throwing wise, he's got a ways to go. Like I said, they were I think for the first two to three drives, he must have ran the ball 12, 9 to 12 times. But it's gonna be interesting to see what he does in Oklahoma. One thing Oklahoma has to look forward to is they don't have they don't play that many great defenses because in the Big 12, it's all about how many points you can score. They do. Oklahoma has a stud named Kenneth Murray Jr. He's like six foot three. I think he's 240 pounds. He's a preseason Big 12, preseason Big 12 defensive player of the year. I mean, those don't matter. You have to actually go out and earn it. But that guy, his closing speed is insane. He's a middle linebacker, definitely captain of the defense. And he just kind of keeps popping out on film. He's the guy that you're always like, who is this guy? Because he's around every single tackle. And then, but back to Jalen Hurts. And you also have to think about it. They just had Baker Mayfield, who won Heisman, and uh, Kyler Murray, who also won Heisman. Those guys are kind of small. So now they have this big guy, 6'3", 225, 6'2", 6'2", 6'3", 225, solid quarterback. It, look, it looks great. I don't know. How, I don't think they're going to score quite as many points this season. Well... Because, like, when they play Texas, I think Texas has a better, much better defense. They'll kind of halt them. And as a matter of fact, I think Texas is going to be a big problem for Oklahoma this year. Because they're just – their offense is not – I don't think is at quite as high scoring. Like obviously, they beat Houston. Houston's not uh, – Houston's in the AAC conference, I'm pretty sure. Athletic – Athletic African Conference. But that's neither here nor there. But I don't think that Oklahoma will be able to put up quite as many points on the board as they've done in years past. We'll see what happens. Though. That's just my take. Lastly, though, in this whole college football thing, Florida State lost to Boise State, and this program has officially done a whole 365 like degree turn. Since what they won a national championship in 2013, and after then, it, and then the year after that, they went to the playoff and they lost to Oregon. But after then, it's really just been kind of sad to watch. Like Boise State is not what they once were when they had the. What's the guy's name? He is now, if I'm not mistaken, he is now, it's not Colt Brennan. But at one point, Boise State was like that team. Like, they came to your stadium and you just knew you were probably getting beat, even if you were like one of the top teams in the country. Nowadays, it's just like another FBS, smaller school type of type of thing. And the fact that Florida State can't beat them, even with the recruits that Florida State is getting, like, you have to think about it. If a recruit, if a guy that played at Boise State who is being recruited by Boise State gets a Florida State offer, he's automatically going to Florida State. So Florida State is dealing with a lot more talented guys, but they just can't seem to put it together. And I'm going to tell you this. I don't think Willie Taggart's going to be able to keep his job too long at Florida State. He is a Florida State head coach because these fans are not happy with this. They are no longer kind of, I mean, they're competitive, but not with teams of the Florida State brand. They're competitive with teams of like a little bit above FCS, just like the conferences, like maybe like UConn or something like that. And that that bothers Florida State fans. They have a very like a prominent, prideful, 
alumni and stuff. They don't like the fact that they can't compete with the top dogs like Clemson. Like, they feel like they should be the antidote to Clemson in the ACC. And right now, it's Clemson, and there's nobody really too close. As a matter of fact, I think Miami is closer than Florida State, and that does not sit well with the Florida State faithful. I think Florida State needs to make sure they hand uh, Willie Taggart and his staff need to make sure they land Deion Sanders' son, Shador Sanders. He's a quarterback. I think he's more so brings that swagger that Deion had. And although he does just go to a private school in Texas and all they are balling out is a private school, but I think he can bring that moxie with him and hopefully just rejuvenate the program. That's a lot to put on an 18-year-old kid's shoulders. But I think that would be a big win for their staff. And maybe he can recruit some other top guys. But that, something has got to change. Like, this is what they're doing right now. It was not working. And if it does not change soon, Willie Taggart will be out of the job. And I know that was his dream job. And I hope that he would be able to stay in it. But he's going to have to uh, show some production right there. Because think about it. You had a whole offseason to prepare for Boise State. And then you lose to them. At Florida State, that that makes no sense. Not to mention a bad thing that happens when y'all lose these games like this. Recruits start being like, "Do I really want to go be a part of that organization?" And then you start getting decommitments from guys that you were going leaning on to turn your program. So we're gonna see what happens. Like I said, my biggest thing from that is they need to get Deion Son. They need Shador Sanders to come back. They need that. That'll be a big win for the staff. But now until who plays on Sundays. In the NFL, Jadavion Clowney has been traded from Houston to from Houston Texans to the Seattle Seahawks. They don't really need two dominant uh, defensive linemen anymore in Houston now that Andrew Luck is out of the division because they don't. I mean, the next best quarterback in that division after Deshaun Watson, who is their quarterback, it's Marcus Mariota. So they don't necessarily need to be paying the defense linemen those huge bucks. Like they can get some, they can get some serviceable guys that can kind of get out there to pass there, and they'll be fine. But on the back end of that, they did pick up Kenny Stills, who's another, he's from, he played at Oklahoma. He's another target for Deshaun Watson, who is loaded. That receiving core is loaded. They just need another dominant tight end. They're loaded at receiver. And also, they got him a left tackle because Deshaun Watson has been hit way too much to be this young in his career. The man played on a brew with a bruised lung, which is insane. But that's neither here nor there. So they got him a left tackle, Larry Tunzel. He went to Ole Miss. He's a solid guy from, not from Miami, but he played with the Miami Dolphins. I think this is a, that was a really great pickup for Deshaun. Watch out for Deshaun. You, he already had all that talent at receiver. Now he got time. Now he'll have time to throw to them without having to be rushed. Now, obviously, they need to construct that whole entire offensive line, but Larry Tunzel was a really good start. Ezekiel Elliott still has is still is not in Dallas at uh, the Cowboys training camp. Well, now they're really moving back to... You know, getting ready for it. So, no longer training camp. Just, just practice at this point. But, Zeke, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this. Because the Cowboys, they start off the season kind of easy three games. They play the Dolphins, the Giants, and the Redskins. None of those teams really can compete with them. The Giants don't even have Odell. And so, most of their receiving cores have, like, broken hands or things of that nature. They're out for the year. So, they're not really worried about them. And the Redskins are going to have... They don't really have much going on either. And obviously the Dolphins are just... The Dolphins are one of those organizations that really are never relevant. They're usually good for beating the Patriots one time in the year. But besides that, they're not really com- competitive. But I don't know. Because Zeke... Okay, here's this, I have this whole spiel with running backs. Parents, if you're listening, do not tell you... If your kids are playing like youth football, don't let them play running back. Because then they're going to want to keep playing it because they might be good at it. Like, tell them to play receiver. If Ezekiel Elliott was doing what he was doing at running back at receiver, he would have already gotten his new contract 
they've been signed, but because the running back position is so replaceable, there's a surplus of running backs. Cause, you know, a lot of guys are just naturally talented, can see holes and things of that nature. It really works against you because they're like, with this whole Ezekiel situation, it's like if he sits out, it's like, we'll just find another one. Maybe that guy can't do everything that Zeke can do, but if he could just do some of that, they'll be fine with that. And so that's basically the Cowboys' leverage. So parents, don't sign your kids up to play running back. And another example, so I don't know if Zeke will get signed. If I had to predict, I'd say he doesn't play week one because I don't think they get this contract done. I think I thought that if they were going to get this contract done, it would have gotten done this past weekend because it was like they were really trying to push it for them, but the two just couldn't come into agreement to what they wanted to do. But another example of how this running back, te- and then technically, the Cowboys don't have to sign him to a new contract because he still has two years. And then two years under his deal, then they can franchise tag him for two more years. It's not like the NBA. So there's something to consider there. Like I said, I don't think he'll be playing by this. He could, but I don't think he'll be back by this Sunday. Also, Melvin Gordon, the, the Chargers did this man wrong. So they basically told Melvin Gordon because Melvin Gordon wanted a trade or just wanted to get what he feels he's worth. And it makes sense because running backs don't even last that long in the NFL because you think all the hits they're taking by these 230-pound, 250-pound linebackers consistently running right into them or these 300-pound defensive linemen. But back to what I'm saying, Melvin Gordon, what the Chargers did with him was like, look, we're not going to give you a new contract and, and we're shutting down our talks, our conversations, our negotiations with you until the end of this season so look here you either pay you either play under this five million dollars which in la is not that much money because you have to think i mean it's money but you have to think about in la there's more taxes or well, california in general so they basically told him if you're not gonna play on this five million dollars we're getting right now you just won't play this season and so that really sucks because he's like man i really have no like i have nothing on my bet like how could i say this he has no leverage Melvin Gordon has absolutely no leverage, so pretty much he has to decide on what he wants to do. And now, because he's missed so much time in training camp, he owes like almost like half a million or a million dollars because of fines for not reporting to training camp. So he's really losing. So let's say if the taxes take off a million, so it's four million, then he's got like three hundred fifty million because. And although that sounds like a lot of money, it's like in the grand scheme of things, that's not that much. Especially we have to understand they these guys, these athletes have a short period of time from like 22 to maybe like 30, 35 to make all their money. So all this to say, when you're negotiating a contract, you better hope you win because if you lose, you might lose big. But, and so I, if I was Melvin, I would definitely go ahead and sign this contract because dude, you you could potentially miss out on losing a whole year of income. It, this, it just stinks that his leverage situation didn't work out how he wanted to, but the Chargers are not about to do what the Cowboys are doing. They're not about to have Melvin kind of like on their leg and like the, him oh, him thinking he has leverage over them. So they just told him, we're shutting it down and we, we're not going to talk about this anymore. It's kind of like, you know, when your parents said, we're not talking about this anymore. That's what they basically did to him. And he's a grown man. So you could take it. And he's plays in the NFL, so he probably got a lot of pride. So you could probably guess that that didn't turn out too well. But that's it for this edition of Matt Sporehouse. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hit me up at M-A-T-T-T-H-E-C-H. O-S-E-N, the number one, you know, a little at sign in between before that. But thanks for listening. I'll catch up with you next week.